My name is Pete Mishler, and my wife Denise and I, uh, I introduced myself the first night that we're here, but we've been a part of Gulf Coast Community Church since 1999, when we first visited in January, actually, of 99. And uh, we were living in Brooksville at the time, and we just felt certain that the Lord wanted us to be a part of this church, so we started commuting back and forth. And the Lord enabled us very shortly thereafter for me to kind of divest myself of my business that I had in Brooksville and Citrus County and uh, kind of reestablish here. And so here we came and we uh, already uh, were almost empty nesters. We have four kids. So, yeah, that's a long time ago. We are pretty old. Well, I should say that of myself. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah. Well, actually, today is Denise's 60th birthday, yes, but we were married, okay, we've been married over 42 years, so she was 17 when we got married. I was 18, we had just graduated high school, Uh, we met, we actually met uh, when her mother heard that God was moving among the young people and she was desperate for somebody to do something with her bad daughter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she was not nearly, she just, yeah, she was not nearly as, as bad, as hopeless as I was as a teenager, but, but I had recently been saved, just miraculously, dramatically, you know, just 180, is that, no, nine, yeah, 180, uh, turned around, uh, just apprehended by God, and so, sure enough, she came in there, and she started asking questions, I had the pleasure, after a maybe six weeks or so of, of forming a friendship with her, of, of being the one to pray with her when she gave her heart to the Lord. We've been together ever since. We, we you know, just did church all the rest of the way through high school and then got married, have four beautiful kids. They're grown. We have 12 grandkids. We came here in 99 really as mature Christians, and yet um, I can't tell you how much God has worked in our lives built, actually built new foundations in our own lives when we got here and began to do dramatic things in the lives of our kids really since 1999, since we got here. We have our second daughter, Amy, and her husband, Chris, are a part of the church. Some of you may know them. They have five kids, the oldest of whom lives with us right now as she attends school and works and is just helpful in their household arrangements. So we have Denise's 90 She'll be 91-year-old mother in one bedroom, sharing a bathroom with 20-year-old Julia. So it's a, it's a real uh, fun time around our home. But uh, we've been co- leading community groups uh, for the last 12 years or so here. Uh, and, uh, and I am part of the, the elder team, the, team the, the seven elders that, uh, uh, who lead the church together as a team, a plurality of elders. And you will learn... Uh, in a subsequent foundations class, w- how we do polity, if you want to, leadership in the church, what, w- what we uh, have come to see as at least the best way we can figure it out according to Scripture in our own understanding. But tonight we're going to be talking about the church's perspective, the centrality of God. And um, this, is, this is a really important, I guess, you could say a foundational kind of a, a, a lesson or message. Our purpose is to demonstrate a proper biblical perspective 
that God is on his throne at the center of all that exists and the only way to rightly relate is under his sovereign rule. So here's where we're going on that. First thing that we'll do is we'll, we'll kind of take a look at the two perspectives on life in, in juxtaposed against each other and try and understand why it's so important that we, that we make this uh, a foundational uh, building block of our, of our faith. This perspective, this in, being informed of this, this worldview that God is on the throne. He's at the center of all things. Why does this matter? And, and then from there, we'll, we'll take a look at our scriptural, uh, I guess we're going to give the scriptural basis for this teaching tonight. And there's, we could go to a lot of places in scripture in building this particular lesson, but we're going to base it on the early chapters of the book of Revelation. And particularly, we're going to look at what it looks like from earth perspective in chapters 2 and 3, and then we're going to go to chapters 4 and 5 to look at what it really looks like when you look at it from the overall perspective of God on the throne. And, and so we're going to kind of lay that as the foundation for this, this doctrine, if you will, the centrality of God. And, and then we're going to and, and take a look at how that affects history and everything else. Then we're going we're gonna to go from there to tying this to three ways that we actually live with God at the center. And, uh, and after we look at the ways that we live with God at the center of the throne by trusting Him and, and by living our lives in submission to His will and, and then looking at... Um, uh, you know, walking in fellowship with him. Then we're going to go to the third uh, thing, which is to examine some of the enemies of God-centered living. What it is that battles against walking, living in a perspective that, uh, uh, that's formed by an ongoing realization that God is at the center and he's on the throne. We're going to look at some of the enemies to that. And then we're going to finish up by, by looking at some practical, how does that affect the way that we approach ministry, the way that we do church as a church together? And, and how does that affect, in a practical way, you know, what we see as the way to approach, um, well, doing ministry, doing life together as a church? So that's where we're headed tonight, and uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that you are on the throne. And as we come before you now, Lord, we need your help, the help of your Holy Spirit. And we know that you are pleased to make yourself known to us and that you're pleased to transform our thinking through your word so that we can have it shaped to this perspective, this worldview that you are on the throne. So help us tonight, Lord, and uh, open our hearts to these things. Let them become things that we build our lives on through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the power of your word, as the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts. We ask in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. So, one's perspective really affects how they interpret the facts. The... Um, that interpretation will then affect our behavior. And at Gulf Coast, what, what we endeavor to build our worldview on is this God-centered perspective. 
Now, this runs contrary to human nature, and it runs contrary to the current societal norms. In fact, all the societal norms really forever. But we believe that it's the intent of Scripture to be understood in this light. This is this really is a basic building block. When we allow our worldview to be rebuilt on this basis, it'll transform every area of, of our lives. It'll, it'll transform how we understand the gospel itself and our relationship to God. It'll, it'll, it'll be a magnificent place on which to build marriages that are God-honoring and successful. It'll, it'll have just a profound impact on how we do child-rearing, for facing adversity in our lives, for making large and small decisions, Everything, a life built on bad theology and, and a wrong perspective can have devastating consequences because of shipwrecked faith, uh, disillusionment, bitterness. Um, you understand, you've, you maybe have met people who have a shipwrecked faith because they didn't understand the centrality of God in, in their own Christian walk. Instead of being God being on the throne and at the center something else was, and, and it, that, that something else generally is us. We're on the center uh, of our world. And so, um, while, you know, it, it may seem self-evident to us that this is the only Christian worldview, but, and that it has to be built on this doctrine, but this is not the predominant presupposition or perspective of the modern Western church, um, much less the surrounding, surrounding culture that you and I have lived in and had our perspectives shaped in as we have grown up. <clears throat> but uh, not, only, not only that, but it's always been that way throughout human history, but ever, ever since the fall of man, we see ourselves at the center of everything as if we were creatures of our own reality and it all existed to make us happy. And so that's been that way in human societies always, but particularly in the modern world, ever since really um, modernity, I guess, with, you know, with the, uh, what am I trying to say? The Enlightenment, the post-Enlightenment world, the centrality of man is really the unquestioned assumption of any discussion. If you watch modern entertainment, if you watch anything on television or on the movies or anything in popular media, the presupposition underlying everything that we see, everything we digest, is that man, humans, I mean, mankind, men and women, humans, are at the center of all things. And everything flows out from that center. So, anyway, we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 1. As we start, we're going to take a look at, at chapter 1, verse 9. Have you guys been doing any reading out loud? Has the teacher been doing all the reading for you? Both? All right. You got the slide up there? Does somebody want to read chapter 1, verse 9? Okay. All right, here we are. We find at the beginning, John is on this island, Patmos. It's, it's, just, it's just a little teeny isolated uh, island where he's been banished. And 
And at this point in his life, it's looking as though the, the human authority has mastery over the church, has mastery over all that's going on. And it's seeming as though the church is really insignificant in the face of the greater society. It's like a flea on the back of the Roman Empire. And whether this is, whether Revel- whether this is set in the time of Nero or Domitian, and I know most theologians think that it was more in the 90s in, under the reign of Domitian, but there are some who think that it might have been in the late 60s, mid-late 60s under Nero. At, at that time, Christianity was not officially illegal in the Roman Empire because they didn't even, hardly aware of its existence. But Nero did find it uh, very convenient to blame these, this strange sect in Rome uh, for the you know for the burning, and so there was a fierce persecution that arose in Rome. But later in the 90s is when it fir- finally actually became illegal, and then it remained illegal. Christianity was officially illegal in Rome for hundreds of years after that, and uh, and so it was just it would seem so insignificant within the greater context of the Roman Empire and all that was... It was a very cosmopolitan world. And in many ways, it's something like today where it, where it might have seemed marginalized. And so here, here John is on Patmos, and he's writing to the seven churches in Asia uh, Minor in the same place that, that Jerry was, you know, pointing on the map today as he was preaching. And... And he's, he's writing to these seven churches. Now, we know that there were a whole lot more than seven churches. There were churches all down through uh, Judea area and, and Syria. And there were churches uh, all the way through, um, you know, Greece and all the way into Rome and probably beyond that. But he was writing to those seven churches. So the significance of that is not uh, is that those seven churches could represent all of Christendom, all of the church, the church universal, and the seven by writing to these seven different churches. So, in in uh, chapter two, we see he's he's um, writing to the church in Pergamos, or, or Jesus now is speaking to the church in Pergamos, and 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 somebody want to read what he has to say. So here we see this, this, that Jesus himself is saying that this is where Satan's throne is. And sometimes, I mean, did Satan really have his throne in, in Pergamos? Well, yeah, he did. He, he had his throne there. And sometimes it might look like Satan has his throne here. Or when you look at, at the, uh, the, you know, ISIS rolling across Syria and, um, Syria and, um, Iraq, and beheading people, and pillaging, and, and doing terrible, terrible things that, you know, or different, the, the um, what am I trying to say, the, the trafficking, human trafficking that we see right here in Tampa Bay, uh, it would seem that sometimes that Satan's throne is here, and, and Jesus said that Satan had his throne there, there was real suffering going on, it was intense, uh, and, and you know they might have they might have thought god what is going on where are you and so jesus does say that but 
Even though Satan has his throne there, and that's a real thing that we see the activity that's going on, the evil activity, there's a throne that rules over all the other thrones, and that is the throne of God, and it's at the center of the universe. Have you ever looked at the unfolding events of history, like the human trafficking or, or ISIS or things like that? It looks like evil has gained ascendancy is in control and you're, and you're wondering, God, are you paying attention? Have you lost control? What's going on here? We see that the church in, in Western Europe has almost completely disappeared in some ways. We see that in America that the church does not seem to have the, uh, the influence. Christendom, there's lower and lower and lower a church attendance as you look through the decades. What's going on? We see the evil that, that, that there is. It seems to be on the rise. And I'd say that the suffering saints who were the original recipients of the revelation may have been asking the same thing. And John may have as, as well. So we're going to see now that John is going to be caught up into heaven so that he can see events of the universe from a heavenly perspective. So both perspectives are real, but the heavenly one is more real. God is at the center of the universe, and everything begins at the throne of God in the center. So we're going to turn uh, now to God on his throne in, chap- in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And uh, does anyone feel like reading that much? Project well. If not, I'll w- I will, but we have a reader. Okay, and then we're going to jump to to Revelation chapter 5 and just a couple of separate verses because what we're doing is we're building this scene. So we're going to skip over a little bit and build this whole scene that where we see this this heavenly uh, view that John has of God on the throne and all that's around the throne. So then he says in chapter 5, verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then we see in verse 11, it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, it says in verse 13, and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Now the word thronos 
is used 19 times in chapters 4 and 5. All but a couple of these refer to the throne of God. We don't easily understand in our human minds what this picture of a throne is communicating because we don't have a throne in America. There's an Oval Office. And, but this is a throne. It's not the Oval Office. We think of people being elected. Tomorrow is, is, uh, is um, voting day. And we think of them being in office for a while. And then they have checks and balances. And then hopefully they, got, they get kicked out of there. And someone else goes in and messes it up for a while. <laughs> and hopefully the checks and balances work. And they don't do any more damage than they would if they were left unchecked. Uh, but God is on the throne. God is on the throne. He rules. He makes the decisions. Nobody argues with it. He carries it out. He is sovereign. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. All we see down here is the footstool. The decisions are made and the decrees originate in heaven. And well, yeah, we'll throw that up there, This uh, the, the quote by James White. <coughs> author and apologist James White. And we might not be able to read through all these quotes, but we'll just you know, look at this one quickly. I believe one of the reasons modern men struggle with some of the plain biblical truths of old is because so few of us any longer have a king. Royal power and authority was fundamental when the scriptures were written, and often the power of God to properly rule over his own creation is likened to the power of a king to rule over his realm. Since most of us do not bow to a king, we see little reason why we should bow to God. And I think that we see that in our culture and in ourselves. We don't want to bow to anybody. When we say that God's throne is at the center of all creation, what we're really saying is that God directs all things. He's sovereign. He reigns. So it's, he's at the center of all creation. But what, that, what we're saying is he is reigning over all things. He is in charge. Isaiah chapter 14. Would someone like to read that? Isaiah chapter 14. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purpose and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out and who can turn it back? That's right. And I tricked you. I skipped over Psalm 135. Someone want to get that? Okay, now why does God direct all things? Somebody want to answer me? Clue. It's it's on the notes. Why does God direct all things? That's right. He directs all things because he created all things. He sustains all things. Therefore, he rightfully rules over all things. It's his stuff. He made it all, including us. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him and all things were created in heaven and on earth. Speaking of Jesus, by the way, the second person of the Trinity. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And in Romans 11.36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Now, to what end does God direct all things? It's there in your notes. And it's also 
That's right. It's in a way, such a way that they render glory to him. And uh, we didn't make this stuff up, by the way. You'd find this in the Westminster Catechism. And I mean, this is, this is the basic, basic you know, doctrine of the, uh, well, of the church, really, <laughs> forever. See, this stands at irreconcilable odds to, with what we see in our old natures as the purpose of everything, to render glory to ourselves. That is the way we are wired. Now, going back to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we have this picture. And, and Ron, Ron's got the, or uh, Chris, uh, you got the overhead. Okay, God is at the center of his thrones. So we see in Revelation, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And then around him are the four living creatures. And, and we read, and around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And then around that, we have the 24 elders who are seated on the throne and, uh, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And then around the 24 elders are the angelic host where there are, there are the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands or 10,000 times 10,000. It's a big, big number. And then around the angelic host is every living creature. That's everything else. That's all of us. We're all in this big circle, and at the center of that circle is God on the throne. God is on the throne. God made all things. He sustains all things. He directs all things from his throne in such a way that all things ultimately bow down and render glory to him. And that is the rest of the story as far as where John was on Patmos where Satan on Patmos and talking to the church in Pergamos, where Satan had his throne. And this is so different than any kind of earthly rule that we know. It takes it, it takes some it just takes some different thinking to, to see this. For one thing, when we look around, we do not we see the footstool. We see that Satan is doing bad things. We see that bad things are happening all around us. We've experienced bad things. Some of us maybe things that are too, so terribly wrong. And, and, and it's true. And we see that people aren't bowing their, their knees to Jesus Christ. But you know, when, when Pilate asked Jesus if he was a king, he replied, my kingdom is not of this world. See, any petty tyrant can put people in subjugation to himself. That's been happening since the fall, is that you've got some who are sub- subjugating others to themselves. But this doesn't prove their greatness. Tyrants have come and gone since the beginning of time. Where's Nero? I mean, where are Domitian today? They, they went on to the, as Reagan said, the scrap heap of history, as, as did many of the tyrants of our own day. Um, he, he sought to eradicate Christianity. And, and it, for all intent and purpose, I mean, it just seems like it would have been really easy for him to do. It was a faltering little sect of it was weak powerless it's not like they they took control of a country and then began to spread there by subjugation of others like islam basically spread that's how islam spread but that's not how christianity spread islam spread because he was able to conquer a city and then they kind of set up his stronghold there and he was able to roll it out further they'd conquer people and then all of a sudden those people were muslim okay or if they weren't muslim then they were paying a tax and you know being subjugated that's not how Christianity spread. Jesus rules over the hearts of men. Um, 
And even, even in modern days when totalitarians have sought to control the thought, they end up failing every time. Only God has the, shown the power to bring the human heart truly under his rule. Well, the question that remains here is, how do I relate to everything going on in my life in such a way that it renders glory to God? Since we know that is the ultimate purpose by, for which he does rule and reign over, over all things. And we, as Christians, have bowed our hearts to his lordship, have, have willingly come into that realm where we recognize that he's on the throne. So how do we relate everything going on in my life in such a way that it renders glory to God? Well, our thinking has to be transformed. We, so we do this by being informed by God-centered perspective in all of our lives that we, that we re-inform ourselves with uh, all the time. There's the three ways that we're going to look uh, at and how to live life with God at the center. The first is by trusting God in the midst of trial. What's going on in your life today is, is not a surprise to God. What we see happening uh, we don't have to be overwhelmed with. We don't have to be anxious because God is in control. But that doesn't mean that it's going to always work out to serve our ends. See, that's the me-centered kind of looking at the way that we go to God uh, as if be- because we're Christians, everything's going to work out okay. That's not how it o- always goes. We know that. God is not a means to an end. Living with God at the center means supplanting our goals and agenda and living for His. We look at um, Revelations chapter 5 after, after we see the, them at, at the throne. And, and we see, and I don't even have this written here, so someone's going to read that for me so that I don't stand with my, with my back to you. But read Revelation 5, one, I mean 5, 1 through 5, if you would. Why was John crying when nobody could open the scroll? What is the scroll that, that was being opened? And why was John crying? Well, John was crying because this scroll represents the unfolding of history. It's everything that's, that's happening, okay? And, and, and so, and so nobody, nobody is found who could open the scroll, meaning in a sense, who is going to take all these injustices and make them right? Who's going to be the one that's going to prevail over the evil? Who is the one that is going to make it work out? And so when he sees that there's a lamb, that Jesus Christ is the one who has authority, has won the victory and is able to open the seals, then his weeping stops and the, and the scroll is open. But then we look at the, at the scroll and you see in chapter, in chapter 6 here, the different things. And I'm not going to read all of that, but but the ones that I have highlighted, the white horse we see is the rider going out and a crown is given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So 
that would uh, represent the picture of Christ leading the church into the world to bring the gospel. And then we have, though this, then that's good. But then we have this red horse that's war. That's not good. People, I mean, war is horrible. It's, it's terrible. We've seen war in our own time. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing. But then we see that he has rule over the black horse. That seal is the black horse. And that represents famine. Another terrible, terrible thing that we see. And then we have the, the pale horse, which is, represents death. And so none of these things, which from an earthly perspective would be coming from the throne of Satan, are beyond the control of the Lamb. Nothing can be done outside of the Lamb opening the seal. History is from Him, through Him, and history is rendering glory to Him. History is, as we, you've heard, His story. So, William Hendrickson says, We see God's footstool. Let us not forget His throne. To be sure, we say, we say that to them that love God, all things work together for good, but do we really believe it? Sometimes we speak and act as if the control of events and the destiny of the world rested in the hands of men instead of in the hand of God. Do you worry about the economy? Um, your kids? My daughter is in, it's, it's funny, she's flying home right now. Our oldest daughter um, surprised Denise. Denise's, today is Denise's birthday. So our oldest daughter, I knew about this, but Denise didn't know that she was going to fly in yesterday afternoon because her husband, Matt, does a lot of, you know, he has points, uh, airline points. So he said, it's your mom's 60th birthday. Heather, why don't you see if you could just fly there for a quick turnaround and surprise her? So she was able to do that. She, she flew in yesterday afternoon. We were going to the Next Step banquet. We had a place for her at the banquet. And, uh, so, but Denise didn't know that she would be there and that she'd be going to the banquet. So while she was showering, Amy, our second daughter, who was also going to the banquet, came in all dressed up with Heather off, out, off the airplane. Heather goes into Julia's room and gets changed. And, uh, and, and so she's standing there all dressed up, ready to go to, this, to, to the banquet when Denise comes out, you know, dre- mostly dressed and, and, you know, and comes out and there's Heather. And she says, is it you? <laughs> and then she starts crying, of course, and everyone else starts crying. But anyway, I'm talking to Heather today and Heather was, we were talking about her sometimes just thinking about her kids, knowing that, that or just feeling certain that um, their lives are going to be harder than her life. And, uh, and so is that something that you worry about? Our country, where is it headed? Our kids, what's going to happen to them? Everyone has these different areas of fear. But, but we see that, and, and you know what? There's no, nobody said, you know, it's not like because we're Christians, we believe that, oh, it's going to be okay. It's, well, it may not be okay. Actually, I was talking, last night I talked at the banquet about about God's mercy and justice. And, and when you look at the fact that we've killed almost 60 million, legally killed almost 60 million of the weakest, most defenseless Americans since 1973 when Roe v. Wade was passed, nearly 60 million, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable evil. I don't know how any of us could think that 
our country will escape judgment. But that doesn't mean that God's not on the throne. And so we look forward and we can have the concern that, that it may not be good. But that's not being pessimistic. That's not being a woe sayer. It's not saying that I'm in despair. I trust, I'm trusting that God is on the throne. And so trusting God is the opposite of trusting in ourselves or in what man can do for us. Trusting God, faith, is about where we go with our fears and our troubles. So in 1 Peter 3, we, chapter, uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, we read, Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your heart set Christ apart as Lord. This is not about being passive, however. No, but we see the state of things and we cry out, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus taught us to pray. And so you see on what Peter bases his command not to fear what they fear. And that's in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So do not fear what they fear. The fear of the Lord, it supplants the fear of these other things. The fear of the Lord supplants those fears. If we fear the Lord, then there's nothing else, there's nothing else to fear because we know that He is on the throne. So, we do not need to fear what the world fears when we're going to Christ, living with Christ at the center of our lives. The foundation of for a God-centered life is a God-dependent prayer life. It is there that we bring our fears. And listen, we say that we trust in God, but if we're not praying, that's not really, really trusting. It's more like we're actually engaging in a kind of fatalism. Okay, We're just being passive and lazy, escapists. If we say we trust in God, but we're not praying... There's, that's a kind of a, um, it's a kind of an unbelief. And, and I've, I, I've engaged in it. I'm, but I'm saying that real trust in God is, is, goes to the throne of grace and engages him in prayer. Now, truly trusting God, it starts with the gospel. That's why the gospel, we talked about the gospel before we came to the centrality of God. Because it starts with the gospel. If you look at Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you understand that our, our understanding of being able to um, trust in God has to start with the gospel, that he did not destroy us, he did not judge us in our sin, though we deserved his judgment, but he freely gave us salvation. And I have found myself asking people um, oftentimes, you know, when I see that they're, when they're in fear, um, I'll ask them, or I find it helpful to ask myself that uh, and others, what's the greatest problem you have? What's the greatest problem that you have? Well, the greatest problem any of us could ever have was being separated from God and under his judgment. That's it. Can you think of a greater problem than that? There's no greater problem. And so that's what I mean by saying, 
by looking back to the gospel. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's arguing from the greater to the lesser. You see what I mean? So it starts with the gospel, trusting God. Because if he shed his blood for us while we were yet enemies, what will he not do for us? How will he just kind of ignore the things that are going on with us? Once we have belonged to him, we've been purchased by his blood. So we could do nothing to remedy our greatest problem. We were dead. It was Jesus who remedied our greatest problem. So we can trust him. First Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then we look at what Charles Spurgeon says. There's no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty both ordained their afflictions and that sovereignty overrules them. And that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There's nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. Now, there is a tension we have seen theologically there's a tension sometimes between is God good or is he all-powerful? And sometimes you've seen theologians come down on the side of, well, he, he's good, so he must not be all-powerful. He must not know what's going to happen always. He must not always be able to dictate the outcome. But we don't need to give up God's goodness in order, or God's his sovereignty over all things in order to understand that he's good. And righteous. We just need to know that there's stuff we can't figure out or understand now from our earthly perspective, from the footstool. But it will be known in heaven. There will come a time, there will come a time when no one will be able to accuse God of injustice, of unrighteousness. Because all unrighteousness will be resolved. And thank God that we're on the side of having had the injustice of our lives, the injustices that we've perpetrated, the unrighteousness that we've done that demanded justice, that that justice was poured out on Jesus' head on our behalf. So that we don't have to fear his justice, we can rejoice in his justice. So there'll come a time when no one will be able to look and say, what you did wasn't right. It'll be seen that God's justice will be complete and full. So there's no tension between his goodness and his sovereignty. And there doesn't, you don't ever need to be afraid of that when somebody, uh, you know, when somebody confronts that. All right. Um, the second way we live with a God-centered perspective is by living our lives in submission to his will. So by trusting in him and living in submission to his will. Now, while we'll often admit on Sunday mornings that God is sovereign, God's at the center of the universe, we often function as if we are at the center of the universe. In our own sinful nature, we see a man-centered universe, a me-centered universe. We're born that way. It's very hard to escape that uh, perspective. 
That's a perspective that assails us. I mean, it's the rut in the road that our tire goes into if we're not reinforming ourselves through the gospel, through the, the scriptural knowledge. You understand how the rut you're driving along, if there's a rut along that, it's just going to, your tire's going to go down in that rut. And so that's the way we're oriented. When we're me-centered, everything and everything must serve us, food, cars, others, etc. Why? Because in our mind, our need's more important than what God requires. That's all. We're, we're, like, we're almost like lunatics, ad- addicted to this crazy, destructive preference of self. When we're man-centered, we'll likely acknowledge God, but for this reason, God is there to serve me. God is going to bless me. God exists for my good. I, have a, I, I can have a simple worldview and add God to that worldview. Just make him the one who does me the most good. He's so wonderful to me. If we're God-centered, he becomes my reward. See that? He becomes my reward. My great treasure, the ends rather than the means. Now, you know the only way to get to this place is to have our hearts made alive by regeneration, of, by being born again. So the only way to get there to that thing is that he becomes our reward, our great treasure, the ends rather than the means. Thanking him becomes a priority. Loving others becomes a priority. Being content, a priority. Why? Because these things are the things that he requires. When I'm not getting the food I want, then then being content glorifies God because that is what he has required of me in the situation and being thankful to him for the fact that I'm eating, having food and clothing. If God is at the center of our lives, when others wrong us, we do not focus on how we have been wrong, but rather on how we are to respond in a way that will honor God. Easy, right? (laughs) You know. That's why it takes, we have to work for this. But that's why when we're walking in a God-centered perspective, it, these other things come along in the, that kind of come along with that. Because it shapes the way we see things. It shapes the way our perspective. We begin to understand conflict differently. Instead of seeing it as an evil that makes us miserable and therefore must be avoided at all costs, or we must win at all costs, have victory and, and roll over all opposition in conflict. No, we start to see that God is actually use, can be using conflict for our own sanctification. Uh, and for reconciliation of ourselves and others, why does conflict come? Well, it usually becomes it comes because of sin, sin between two different people that's erupting anger and different things because we don't get our way and so forth. So then, conflict in our relationships, if we see conflict as God's way of pinpointing sin issues, then we see that God is in charge even of the conflict, and and so. Um, I mean, what if the negative situation I find myself is not even primarily about me at all? But what about what God intends to do in the life of the other person involved? When, what, have you ever found yourself in a situation where it really wasn't about you? It was about somebody else and their good? When I'm living with a God-centered perspective, I place myself in a position to be a peacemaker. A servant of the gospel of reconciliation. When persecuted, I can actually rejoice. When mistreated, I am able, enabled to entrust myself to God. When sinned against, forgiveness is possible. And I can ask, what is the God-glorifying response? When we see that our marriage is not firstly about our spells, ourselves and our spouses and our happiness. 
We, and, it's, and we don't elevate marriage itself to the place of an idol. But we see that our marriage is first and foremost about God. He created it. It's for his purposes. Then it, complete, it puts everything into a different perspective in marriage. Um, same thing with our children. Our bosses, our children are for God, for his purposes. Our bosses, our relationship with them, our parents, our siblings, every relationship. All right, then the third thing, the third way that we live with a God-centered perspective is by living in constant fellowship with him. 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18. Who wants to read that? Please. Very good. While the believer may undergo um, many sorrows and troubles, there is a joy that we are to have in all of life because Christ has conquered. Knowing the ultimate outcome of events, trusting in his invisible work, we're able, even commanded, to rejoice. To live life in in a state of grumbling is to live in a me-centered world. Of course, we don't immediately go to the suffering believer who happens to be grumbling and start telling him to stop. We we hopefully we can come alongside and help bear their burdens and grieve with them and lead with example. And then we can pray with them in a God-centered way. And, and actually, don't, it's not a good idea to try and talk people out of their suffering or their complaining, but rather to come alongside and to help them bring their troubles to the throne of grace that they may, as Hebrews says, may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's something that my wife has always been so faithful about through our lives, always reminding me. Because, you know, you know I'll, I'm, I think I'm pretty smart. And so I think somebody will come to me and have problems and want, you know, talk to me about their problems. And I'm talking about their problems and trying to help figure stuff out and thinking somehow that I have something for them. I don't have anything for them. Denise always would be faithful to say, Pete, if she's there, she'll just be doing this, you know, nudging me. It's like... Because she knows where to take them to the throne of grace. So, and then, and she, or she'll ask me afterwards. So I'll tell them about an encounter with a person. Well, did you pray with them? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I could have, I could have taken them to the throne of grace and gone with them there, the place where they could really get help. Oh yeah. So that's an important thing to remember. The. The reason the believer is aware of the invisible work of our Lord is rooted in our constant dependency on him expressed in prayer. We're to pray without ceasing. This doesn't mean that we're never not praying. Rather, that prayer is our default mode. We're regularly and often turning to the Lord in prayer. And not only are we calling on him, but this often grows into a life of gratitude to him. Notice that the three commands were given in this scripture well, it's down now, but are all centered in prayer. That's rejoice, pray, give thanks. And this God-centered fellowship and dependence is God's stated will for our lives. This, this is what we mean by walking in the Spirit. It's walking, in the, and walking by faith, walking in the Spirit. It's just as simple as this God-centered way of seeing that He's in control and so always turning to Him, always realizing, I'm in a situation, God's at the center of it. How do I get into this? 
oh yeah, God's in the center of it. And so turning to him in prayer. So to summarize right up to this point, God is on his throne at the center of all that exists. And the only way to rightly relate to reality is under his sovereign rule. Now, let's take a look real quickly at some of the enemies of God-centered living. First is sinful human nature, okay? If you want to know what our big enemies are, number one is me, (laughs) right? Our hearts rage against the rule of God. We see in Psalm 2, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. The folly of man who denies God is evident in this, in that when he prospers, he says, like it says in Deuteronomy 8, when God warned them, when you know, when they were warned, when your hearts prosper, oh, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But then we see in, in Proverbs 19, when he suffers, he asks, how can God allow this? A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. As believers, we cannot continue in this empty-headed kind of thinking. We can't allow our lives to be dictated by the lie that we're at the center. This takes a lifetime of practice, like straightening a tree with a curved trunk. We have to, you know, you can tie, like, I have these, I have these gardenia bushes. And <laughs> man, oh man, you can straighten them out, you know, and re, they're in big pots and re, tamp them down and they're straight. You come back two days later to water them and it's over that way. It's like, come on guys. So anyway, it takes ongoing training. We have to make a practice of speaking to our hearts instead of listening to our hearts. That's one of the things I've said to my kids and my grandkids a million times. Are you listening to your, your, your heart right now or are you, or are you speaking truth to it? There's a difference. One is I'm brooding over things. I'm turning it over in my mind. I'm thinking about revenge or whatever else it is. It's, there's nothing good going on in there because I'm on the, firmly implanted on the center of, the, of this thing instead of preaching the truth to myself, preaching, the, reorienting myself through the gospel to the centrality of God. <clears throat> so Ephesians says, so I tell you this, And insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You, however, in verse 20, did not come to know Christ that way. We need to constantly go to the gospel, to Christ, to reorient our lives. The gospel orients our lives to the centrality of God in the universe. And this brings us to the second enemy of God-centered living, and that's a false gospel, which is really no gospel at all. A man-centered gospel. And this this is something that you'll see um, is one of the distinctives that we try and that we try and really hold precious in our life as a church is is a non a non-man-centered gospel. Um, the false gospels adopt the assumptions of the secular world. Modern religion centers around man and not God. The question seems to be, how can I benefit? How can God benefit me? The biblical question is, since God created me, what is due him from me? What pleases him, gives glory to our creator? The real gospel begins with God and what is due him. The real gospel does not, as Piper said, make God a means to, of grace, but rather correctly poses grace as a means of gaining God. Okay? And so, 
Um, you'll hear oftentimes gospel presentations that start with basically, you know, Jesus, how Jesus will bring you happiness. It's not really a, a good starting place for bringing the gospel. It just isn't. Because for one thing, a person may be in Christ and, and suffer a lot of unhappiness. A lot of unhappiness. Is, are they, is Christ with them through that unhappiness? What is the meaning of that unhappiness in their lives? I mean, what are you going to tell somebody who suffers from, from ongoing depression? Even if nothing bad is going on particularly in their lives, but they're suffering with ongoing depression. Okay, what happened to that gospel that Jesus is going to make them happy? Jesus isn't there to make us happy. That's not, that's not a good starting place for the gospel. Now, if you look at this quote from J.I. Packer, and we can't, we don't have time to read through it. But I wish you had time to read it. It's glorious. <laughs> we bartered the biblical gospel for a substitute product, which, though it looks similar enough in points of detail, is decidedly a different thing. Okay? So the substitute product doesn't answer the ends for which the authentic gospel has in past days proved itself so mighty. Why? Because it fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts, God-fearing in their hearts, because that's not what it's trying to do. What it's trying to do is that it's trying to be helpful to man, to bring peace, comfort, happiness, satisfaction, and too little concern to glorify God. So uh, the gospel... Primarily, the concern of the real gospel is that it's always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment, a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good. And so, so it, it's helpful and brings happiness as an incidental benefit. And that's something else I'm always telling my kids. Are you pursuing happiness as your chief goal? It will elude you. It will elude you. And if you get it, what do you have? Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to go away. If you're pursuing a life centered on God, then happiness will come as an incidental benefit. And, but it will be a rich and real happiness that, must nev- that will never, you will never lose it because you will never lose Jesus Christ. Nor will he ever lose his hold on you. So when man is at the center, truth is secondary. Lifestyles and our needs are the utmost importance. The good news makes no sense without beginning with God and the bad news of where we truly stand with him. When God is at the center, truth is absolute. Listen, have you ever wondered why about the anger that's directed at the church over issues like women's roles, uh, um, the homosexual lifestyle, sex outside of marriage, reproductive rights? I mean, there's genuine anger pointed at the church in these days be over these issues. And, and so um, we're never going to make any headway on these issues without going back to the presuppositions. Without a God-centered presupposition, our arguments don't even make any sense. And we lose the power of the gospel. I mean, why shouldn't somebody be, why shouldn't John and Joe be happy? They just want to be happy. Can't we just leave them alone? And I mean, yeah, we can, but... They need the gospel, and, and if God is at the center, then, then it, it gives us a presupposition from which to be able to, to state the truths of God lovingly and compassionately. 
But we're not, it's not our option to change these things. Anyway, Jude 1 3 says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith as what was once entrusted to the saints. Saints, we've got to contend for the biblical gospel so that we can live the biblical gospel and advance the biblical gospel. This is essential for what is Gulf Coast's mission statement, building a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. So we see the lamb at the center of the throne in Revelation 5 and and again in chapter 7. Why is he at the center of the throne? Because although God is at the center of the universe, we've failed to give him glory. And though God is due glory, we've, not, we've lived for ourselves. But because of the Lamb, God can give us mercy in his rule rather than the wrath we deserve. And we can confidently know because of the Lamb that God is ruling the universe for the good of those who belong to him, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, who love him. And there's just real quickly, I have to cover this practical aspect of doing ministry with God at the center because it really, really affects how we interpret and use the scriptures, how we approach the scriptures. So um, you're going to see that the Bible is not primarily about how to get a man gets along in the world. It's primarily about God, the universe that he created to glorify him and how man has broken God's law and rebellion against him and how God is going about redeeming his people for the sake of magnifying his wondrous grace. That's what you'll find, well, particularly it's stated so clearly in in Ephesians. To the praise of his glorious grace is our salvation. This perspective affects the questions we ask of Scripture as we read it. We're asking, what does this reveal about God and his redemptive purpose? Not, is there something I can use here for today? See what I mean about the way that we approach Scripture itself? It affects dramatically affects how we seek to teach Scripture. It even affects how the preaching diet is planned. Uh, We teach, there's a reason, it's not just incidental that because of our preference, but there's a reason that you see Jerry preaching through the Scriptures and teaching through the Scriptures because they're God's declaration of what the church needs. Uh, So instead of just going to the, the, the Bible and using, cherry picking various verses to back up the teaching that, you know, is on the, on the pastor's heart, which may be an excellent, you know, maybe something really good. But it's, it's different if you take expository preaching as laboring to make sure that the intended message of the text is the message of the sermon. And that you don't skip over your, your, the harder parts to get to your favorite parts that bolster your big argument, your, you know, your basic thing that you really like to talk about. You, Trust that God knows what the diet of the the needs of the church are by preaching through the scriptures expositorily. And even the church's, uh, children's church's curriculum is driven by the centrality of God. If you want secure children who know their proper place in the world, start with and keep God at the center. We see a quote from Anne McCain that says, Our Sunday school teaching should be God-centered because the Bible itself is God-centered. To be consistent with scriptures, we must focus on, on what it focuses on, namely God. When we are God-centered in our teaching, we give children knowledge of God, and knowledge of God is the most wonderful thing we can offer them. 
And so if some of you guys have experienced the children's curriculum here, are involved perhaps in it, and it's just, it really is marvelous stuff. You can, it's good food. I mean, you pick up that stuff and, and get really good God-centered gospel. It's, it's a wonderful. And then it affects every way that we do ministry. Our worship music is very intentional to be God-centered, God-glorifying. It's not the music isn't chosen by the rhythm or beat, although, you know, I know Darren is so cool <laughs> and so musically gifted. But really, um, he more, is so intentional about choosing songs by their content that it's God-centered, gospel-soaked, good doctrine, good theology. Like, like Martin Luther was accused of that he was changing the world, they said, you know, changing all the, the peasants and everything and teaching them his, his doctrine through song. You know, just t- changing their understanding through song. So that's the, what drives our, our, our worship, the music that we use in, in worship. Uh, felt needs in the community do not what choose, uh, drive what we choose to do. The gospel drives the choices for ministry. And, and the gospel teaches us that people's greatest need in Christ is to see God for who he is. This is more important than what they may fill out on a survey that they want from a church. God directs his church. I heard R.C. Sproul say, do you want your church to be relevant? It will always be relevant if people meet with God. So that sums it up. God is on his throne at the center of all things, and the only way to rightly relate to reality is under his sovereign rule. Thank you for your attention. That's a lot of content. Um, it's hard to get through all that stuff in the time allotted, but I do want to allow uh, uh, for a few minutes if you guys have questions or comments on any of the material that we covered tonight.